You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. This episode was recorded at a workshop session at our 2018 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. We're going to talk about something that when I told a friend that I was going to be speaking about gender, he said, I hope it's not going to be recorded anywhere. And and the reason uh, is, is that it's such a crazy topic right now. Um, and I want you to know that part of the reason it's a crazy topic is that my generation didn't handle this very well. You see, there is a, there's a belief in academia and in our culture that gender is a cultural, con, is a, a cultural construct, a social construct, that gender is determined by however a culture or a society defines masculinity and femininity, and that gender is a... Um, is a social construct. Um, That's just simply not true. It is a theological construct. And um, and so we're gonna we're gonna kind of talk about that together. Um, I I I am saddened that in that this has become a litmus test um, in our culture today. I'm saddened that that the name of Christ is somehow being called bigotry, bigotry and, and, uh, uh, and just that just breaks my heart. Uh, I mean, actually, after all, when God chose to write this story of redemption, he had Jesus come into an oppressed people's group as a poor uh, Jewish man in an oppressed people group um, witnessed by a bunch of uh, shepherds. And, and to think now that there, there are people that um, are associating our faith with bigotry breaks my heart. Um, but there's a reason they do that, and part of it is that my generation did not handle these questions well. And so uh, I'd like to think with you together about how to maybe think about these questions differently. The first thing I'd like to say to you, um, other than thanks for what you do, <laughs> um, is that gender is pre-fall meaning um, that um, that gender existed before sin and that um, the idea of and, and if I could just take a quick jump over to the side for just a second you don't need to necessarily agree with what I'm about to say I think all of us would agree that gender is pre-fall um, the, I mean um, just Genesis 1 that talks about it created God in our image uh, male and female. I mean, that we'd have to agree with that. Um, I would suggest to you that gender is is really um, is really part of the way that God. If, if everything pre-fall is to say something about the glory of God, there's something about this this interplay of creation when God is trying to tell us who He is. There's something about this interplay of of the nature of God that that God is uh, and, and completes a complete self. Uh, the, the Trinity, um, it's three in one. You could spend an entire lifetime studying the, the nuances and the theological truths of the Trinity, but there is something about this pouring into one another, this mutual pouring in that is a completing of something that's already complete, that's connecting with already, that's something that's connected that as they pour into one another. And this, this picture of, of the kind of the nature of God is drawn in all of creation when it talks about, uh, about how there is this dance of light and dark and day and night and water and uh, you know, sea and land and this, this incredible picture all through creation of, of, of complete yet still completed and added to and that's just beautiful. And, and I think the way that God, one of the ways God chose to draw that, to present himself to us, is with gender. Now the problem with, our, with whenever you begin to talk about something being different, people begin to say, well, which one's better? 
And what we have done very poorly is we have spent most of our, our theological time at the table telling people what women can do and what men can do. And we've missed the dignity and the beauty of gender, of what it reveals about God, what it says about him. And that there's something about masculinity that says something about God that femininity doesn't fully say. And there's something about femininity that says something about God that, that, that masculinity doesn't fully say. And there's something about when, he, when God looks at Adam and says, oh, um, the, it's not good for you to be alone. And there's, there's, there's going to be a, um, something added to something that was complete that is, that's just the way God is. And so, drawn on the canvas of Eden, God is answering some questions about his very nature. And gender is not primarily about you and I. It primarily says something about the very nature of God. Now, let me... um, And so, on the canvas of creation, on the canvas of Eden, as, as our creative God is is presenting himself to, um, to his creation. And he's explaining uh, through imagery who he is. Oh, and, and you get such a beautiful picture. A um, couple of quick thoughts that, um, about kind of what is seen. Now, there's all sorts of questions that that gender um, gives you a gives you a, a sense of how to answer. Uh, great theological questions like, is God knowable or is God mysterious? That's a great question. How could you answer that question with a in, in the way that God would answer the question? I am more than what you can you can put in a small box. There is something about me that is so complete that when something's added uh, that I, I'm, I'm complete and there's more I, I'm how would you describe is God knowable or is God mysterious yes yes how could you draw that in creation how, how could you draw that in creation because God wants his children to know I'm knowable and he wants his children to know I'm more than you will ever fully absorb. So how do you do that? Well, you could... One thing you might do, if you had the entire canvas of creation to to draw it out, you could make masculinity somewhat knowable and femininity somewhat mysterious. Now, let's not not get oversimplified here and don't get get too upset. Remember that most of masculinity and femininity are, are similar. Um, there, there's a lot that is very similar about men and women. Um, but, the, but, so don't, don't go, well, so are you saying that a man can't be ever mysterious and you're saying a woman can never be knowable? No, 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 I'm, I'm just, let's speak in generalities. I mean, there are comedians that make their living on the mysteriousness of femininity. That, that's, that's, that's true. I mean, you just watch comedy, stand-up comedy, and about a third of it is going to have kind of this gender piece to it, where the man is going to be upstanding there going, I can't figure her out. And everybody laughs. And then if it's a female, um, often what she'll say is, he's just so simple. You know, there's, and what is, now, don't, again, don't over generalize. Men can be mysterious and women can be, um, can be understood, but there's something about femininity at its core that is delightfully mysterious. There's something about God that is delightfully mysterious. The way that he, and, and, and Paul would help us know that as he says, I mean, Paul starts out acting like he knows God well. He's the 13th, I mean, he's the least of the apostles. I guess that makes him number 13 until after a life of sacrifice, he says he's the chief of all sinners. There seems to be a, 
a direction that as he knows him better, he's, he realizes that God is bigger and more mysterious than he ever could be. And I think of 30 years of marriage, and in some ways, and don't misunderstand what I'm going to say, in some ways I know my wife less today than I did the day we got married. There's so much more to her than I ever thought there would be. She surprises me. I remember I thought I'd have her all figured out. I'm a psychologist. And I figured I'd ask the right questions. I knew her favorite color. I knew her favorite music. I would get this done. And I remember thinking, marriage isn't so difficult. I'll get her figured out in no time. I mean, that's what I do for a living. I figure people out. Oh, my goodness, the mysteriousness of femininity. Oh, the beautiful mysteriousness of God. Oh, but the knowableness of God, that I can study and know him better and I can grow in that. So if I'm going to try to communicate to the world, I'm knowable and I'm mysterious. And I have the entire canvas of Eden to draw on, gender, and make men and women in my image. And one tends toward mysteriousness and one tends toward knowableness, if that's a word. Here's another controversy. Does God choose us or do we choose them? I'm a good reformed guy, so let me just say off the bat that he initiates it all. But does God choose us or do we choose him? I mean, churches split over that. We argue over that. We, we, We parse words on that. How could you, if you had, if you knew that was going to be a problem, if you knew that that was going to be a place where theology gets messed up, how could you draw in in the canvas of Eden that picture? Huh. Well, maybe you could make the, the, and again, the essence of masculinity pursuit and the essence of femininity, invitation. Huh. Does God invite or does God pursue? He does both. And there, drawn in the canvas of gender, there's a picture of, uh, of a theological picture. You see, gender is not a social construct. It's a theological construct. Oh, here's another one. Uh, when people are in crisis, he, we just heard a great sermon on suffering. When people are suffering, what do they usually ask? They'll, they'll ask why, and, and as you push, they'll go, is God going to show up? And then the next question is usually, is he good? I mean, those are the questions when, you're, when your house is falling apart, when, uh, when storms come, when a bad diagnosis comes from a doctor. The questions are, is he going to show up? Is he good? Well, masculinity is supposed to be answering one of those questions in a way, and, and, and femininity answers another, another of those questions in a way. And again, um, I, I, I want us, before we begin to talk about what women can do and men can do, and before we talk about roles, before we focus on what's wrong with masculinity and femininity because of the fall, we ought to begin with the dignity of masculinity and femininity. By the way, this generation that I'm, you know, I'm, uh, they should give me a walker. I think I'm the oldest person here. Um, it's interesting that the generation you're working with um, doesn't do well. My generation starts with depravity. When we talk about things, we start with depravity and then we solve the problem. I mean, that's how we, that's how we present the gospel. You're a sinner. Uh, and, and that's kind of what we do. Well, this generation, because of its hypersensitivity about being mean and rejecting people and leaving people out, they tend to, fo- they tend to do better when you start with dignity instead of depravity. 
And so as we talk about gender, I think it would be helpful to, to begin to talk about the, the beautiful theological concept of gender and how femininity reflects a, a mysterious, beautiful, nurturing, um, inv in inviting, creative God. And how mascul masculinity uh, gives a picture of a, of, a, of a strong, pursuing, engaging, validating God. I mean, um, it would be so different if we began there. If I could, just to take just a moment before we go back to the theological concepts, just a, a quick moment as an observer of this generation, some things I've noticed. If you're going to talk to this generation about things that they disagree with, begin with how you are flawed not with how they're flawed. See, every generation has socks hanging out of its suitcase when it comes to understanding things. My generation was raised by people, my parents from the, were the parents of the Depression, and so I was raised in that. And the problem with my generation is we were too materialistic. And we also were too celebrity-oriented. And so that's, and that's still in the church. You're welcome. Um, and, and that's because of, of, of kind of my generation. And so those are some flaws in the way that my generation, my, my, but what I understood, what was kind of the color of the carpet of my growing up, kind of set me up to think that way. Now, the color of the carpet of the people that grew up with iPads, I mean, it amazes me to think that the average 20-year-old, 19-year-old has, has never in their, in their, from their puberty on, has never not known a smartphone. I mean, it's amazing to me, as even I'm sitting here looking at you, there's four or five of you on your phones. I mean, that amazes me. But, um, but before I tell you the things that are wrong with this generation, I should begin by telling you what, how my generation has struggled and how we have failed. Um, before I begin, and, and, and it might not even be a bad idea since this generation starts better with dignity than depravity, to talk about the good that this, that this generation seems to have connected to. That is, because remember, there's socks hanging out of the suitcase of every culture. There's socks hanging out of the culture of, of the, the understanding of every generation. And since there are, it, it's kind of helpful to note to, if you're going to engage this culture, I think sometimes it's, it's helpful to begin with those places in which there, there is some, uh, some dignity. Now that's, oh, are you being soft on sin? Of course not. I, I just would like to speak to them in a way that they'll listen to me. I'd like to speak in a way that they will get to the place where they understand the beauty of a difference. See, they've lived in a culture that's kind of done gender leveling for years. And they've tried to say that there's, that, that there's no difference, there's no difference, there's no difference. And if you say there's a difference, then you must be a bigot. And then I look at the Bible and it says there's a difference. And so I, I've got to, I, I want to, how do I help them see that? And so I think just a, a little advice when you're going to begin this conversation, to, to, to begin with whatever generation you're from. And it's kind of funny, I've got a 27-year-old son and he was telling me the other day, he goes, I tell you what, they just hired some some 20-year-olds at work, and now they just drive me crazy, their work ethic. And I thought, oh my goodness gracious. You know, he's already complaining about the, gener the next generation. You know, and I thought, well, you know, and I wanted to be real snarky and say, well, well you should have seen, but instead I just said, oh, I bet you that's really hard. But, so, you know, that's what a psychologist's father would say. <laughs> that must be hard for you. Let's talk. But um, so, so, so that just in a way, and also when you start talking about sexuality and, um, and gender, begin by saying all of us are flawed on this side of heaven in terms of our sexuality. None of us live out redeemed masculinity and redeemed femininity well. 
And also, I mean, as long as we're just giving some hints on how to have a conversation about this, also be aware that there's lots of ways to express masculinity that's not sexual. And there's lots of ways to express femininity that's not sexual. It is truly odd that we live in a culture that identity is tied to your arousal object. I mean, that is just an odd thing. That, that people, that, that when they say, here's who I am, here's my identity, it seems like the most important thing I'm going to share with you is what, what sexually arouses me. Well, that's just odd. I mean, is that, is that all that our identity is supposed to be about? I mean, you know, and again, every generation has its, has its, has its, its, its goofy things. We, my generation, we would just tell you what we did for a living. You know, if you said... Um, Hi, I'm Jim. I said, well, I work at, you know, I've been a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, which is a, by the way, I think that the counseling program there is, is worth the cost of admission. I mean, I, I'm no, since I'm no longer kind of full-time faculty there, I, I don't get like a $10 bonus for saying that. An angel doesn't get its wings if I say that. I, I'm, just, I'm just saying I, I'd really encourage you to, to, if you're looking for a place that takes seriously the struggle of man and takes seriously the Word of God, at the same time, I think they stumble toward that well. There's a, uh, I, my, one of my best friends is, the, is Scott Copeland, who's uh, the director of the program there, and he's uh, just, a, just a, good, uh, a good man. It is unusual to live in a culture where the first thing people will say about themselves is their sexual orientation. And, it's, and that's become so much a part of identity. That, I mean, the, how people see their identity. That, and, and you've got to at least acknowledge that's an odd, that's an odd way to, uh, a relatively odd way to identify yourself as the primary thing to know of you. And what happens is, is that's how I identify myself. And then if you disagree with anything that has to do with that, then we can't have conversation. It's like, my goodness. Um, would, if I said to you, well, I'm a professor, you go, I don't like professors. I mean, we can still have a conversation. I mean, but, but when your identity gets tied into that. So you want to make sure that you communicate people, their, their, uh, that you connect with them and help and, and try to separate. Don't fall into what the world is saying and try to separate identity from sexual orientation, even though everything in you will be told that that's the same thing. It's not. So those, there's just some quick thoughts about how you might want to consider talking about, 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 about gender uh, with, with, this, with this generation. Just, it's, it's just an interesting time. Um, I, one last thing about this generation. They're incredibly networked, but they're not very well connected. Um, they, they have an incredible amount of, of connection between people and their devices and everything that, that's just so well connected, but they, oh, excuse me, very well networked. They know this and they know that and they know people and they know, but they don't, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of relational connection. Um, and so uh, just be aware that that's something that, that, that you're, um, that you're, that you're going to be dealing with. Well, back back to the original topic of gender. I've tried to I've tried to give you an idea that so far I've tried to tell you that gender is a theological topic, not a not a sociological topic. I've tried to suggest to you that gender is pre-fall, and therefore it says something about the very nature of God. Um, I was in Istanbul a, year, a few years ago doing a women's conference. I realize. <laughs> I realize that there's a problem with that. Uh, I realize some of you think, why is he even doing a youth conference? And then he's been in Istanbul doing a women's conference. That's not why I went to Istanbul. I was there, and the, the guy at the church asked if I'd do a women's, if I'd speak to the women. So, but I, I just talked about, about the fact that femininity reflects the glory of God. And this woman who had grown up Muslim and, and converted to Christianity just began to weep 
the thought that her femininity had that kind of dignity, the thought that her femininity could say something that her husband's masculinity could never say, the fact that she was part of the the message that God was saying to the broken, dying world was overwhelming to her. And she just wept as she tasted the dignity that offered. We have done a poor job, my generation did a poor job of talking about gender in that way. And because of that, one of the reactions against that became, um, you know, kind of the, the movement that we're kind of wrestling with today. Well, how else would femininity reflect the, the, the glory of God? Well, I mentioned some of those, mysteriousness, um, beauty, creativity. Now, can men be creative? Of course they can. Can men be beautiful? Maybe. You know, maybe, but, but clearly not. And, I, and by beauty, I'm not talking about a, a size zero anorexic person with more plastic than flesh. I mean, I'm talking about real beauty. The kind of presence that, um, well, the, the kind of presence Liz just had when she spoke. So, there's a there's something in, in, in there was something in her in her delight in her smile that said oh I want to know her oh there's something about femininity that invites so invitational it it's so uh, captivating and and, and it, it's so sexualized in, in our world the world has kind of taken that and kind of darkened it and made it alluring or seductive. But in its redeemed form, it's inviting. Femininity says something about God's beauty, something about his nurture. Now, most of the time in the Bible, masculine terms are used to describe God. Um, a few times that's not the case. A few times feminine language is used. Uh, like, like a hen gathering, his, gathering her chicks is used to describe God. There's a, there's a few times that you'll find that. But usually it's, it's, it's male uh, when, when it's talking about God. But um, there is something about masculinity and femininity that say something about the very nature of God. So I've talked about nurture. I've talked about um, beauty. I've talked about... Um, um, mysteriousness and invitation. With masculinity, I've talked about pursuit, initiation. Uh, so often in marriage counseling, I, I just what I hear from a woman is just, just do something. And here, or, and, and here's what the guy will sometimes say: Well, if you'll just tell me what you want me to do, I'll do it. And the wife then will often say something like, "If I have to tell you, never mind." And what she's asking for is strength. What she's asking for is something that I can count on, something that, something that I can push up against, someone strong enough to take me on. I, I don't want to feel dangerous. I want to, I want to know that there's someone here that, that's strong enough, that's going to show up, that's not going to live in passivity, and, and that's what masculinity is supposed to be. Redeemed masculinity shows up and says something about God's pursuit. And God has pursued you, has he not? Some of you are old enough to begin to look back. You never can understand your life by going forward. You can only understand it by looking back. You can't connect the dots going forward. You can only connect dots looking back. And some of you are starting to get old enough when you look back and you go, oh, he has pursued me. I thought he'd left me. He's pursued me. I mean, you're in this room because he's pursued you. I mean, he, and that 
masculinity is supposed to say something about that. Now, because of the fall, something gets tainted um, in all of that. Men tend to, and I'm broad brush, men tend to struggle with inadequacy. A man's greatest fear is that he'll, that, that he'll be weightless, that my life will not have mattered. So, so that masculinity, because of the fall, because sin has entered in. I mean, by the way, if you don't think gender is a theological concept, the curse is gender-specific, is it not? So when the fall enters in, men struggle with inadequacy, and, and therefore, when you struggle with inadequacy, what do you tend to do? You tend to withdraw. Struggle of masculinity is to withdraw and be passive and not engage. That's, that's what. And as, as you become more redeemed, as you become to look more like Christ, you become not arrogant, not. But there's a strength that moves. There's a movement to you. I like the way Larry Crabb says that. Larry Crabb says there's something in women, there's something in men that stop that needs to get moving. And there's something in women that's moving that needs to rest. What has the fall done to femininity? Oh, that, that beautiful nurture, that beautiful mystery, that delightful engagement that, uh, that invites. What has the fall done to that? Women, because of the fall, tend to struggle with insecurity more than men. Do men not struggle with insecurity? Of course they do. Do men not struggle, women not struggle with inadequacy? Of course they do. But in general, if you put all the men here and all the women here, in general, you're going to have more of that on this side than that side. Insecurity, that sense of longing for specialness. What happens when you don't think there's enough specialness around? You get controlling. See, masculinity's desperateness makes them tend to withdraw and passive. Femininity's desperateness, desperateness because of the fall, makes them want to uh, feel insecure and control. A woman's great fear is that she'll be invisible, that she'll offer who she is, and it'll be ignored, abused, or used. So I just won't offer. I'll control. A man's great fear is I'll be weightless, and so I just won't offer who I am and face the fact that my life or my pursuit didn't matter. I'll, I'll be passive. And God invites us to live uh, this redeemed, redeemed view of gender. Well, there's so much more we could talk about. Um, let me make a suggestion of a great book series to read on gender. And when I tell you this, most of you will, you're about to write it down. You're about to go, okay. Watch the book. And when I tell you the book series, you're going to quit writing and go. I'm, I'm telling you, that's what you're going to do. Um, I'd love for you to read the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis. It's a story of a guy by the name of Ransom who, he writes, it's, it's, it's you know, it was written in 1950-something. So, you know, it, it lacks a little bit of the Star Wars flair to it. But the first planet he goes to um, in, in the first book, Out of the Silent Planet, um, the first planet he goes to is masculine. And the task of Ransom is masculine. He's, 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 there's conflict and, um, and all the imagery is, uh, is, is, um, is masculine imagery. The second one is a book called Perlandria. I think I said that correctly. 
And it is feminine. And, and after he goes there, he's reborn. And there's a, there's a, little, just a little section at the end of, of this. And then the third one is called The Hideous Strength, and that's the, the two of them kind of working together. Now, he only... He explicitly talks about this only a couple of times in the entire series. But as you read the first, think masculinity. As you read the second, think femininity. When you read the third, think the interplay of that together. Um, but, but here's... Um, both the bodies were naked, and, and, but both were free from any sexual characteristics, primary or secondary, that one would have expected. But yet there was a curious difference about them. He found that he could not point to one sing, single feature that differentiated, but it was impossible to ignore that the first planet was like rhythm and the second one was like melody. There was a way that they played back and there's a way that they complemented and moved with one another that, that they, they understood. One was like melody. The other was like rhythm. Everyone must sometimes have wondered why in nearly all cultures and languages and tongues certain innate objects are masculine or others feminine. And it, but this cured me in believing that this was just a phenomena. Our ancestors did not make mountains masculine because they projected male characteristics into them. The real process is right the opposite. Gender is reality. I'm not going to read the entire passage. We don't have time. But there's this... Um, Sexuality is a mere, is not the only way masculinity and femininity gets lived out. Masculinity and femininity is a part of the creative order of God. Those, that, that, that rhythm, that melody. And that's the nature of God himself. It's the nature of creation. It's the nature of all of, 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 of creation. And it is shown in gender. And there's something incredibly beautiful, powerful, and theologically amazing about that. And so um, the first planet was masculine, not male. The second was feminine, not female. The first seemed to have a look of one standing armed whose eyes were roaming with the earthward horizon as if there was danger, like a sailor's look. And the second one, uh, and his eye, the eyes of the first were impregnated with distance. The eyes of the second one that recognized femininity opened and were inward. And they were a curtain gateway to the world of waves and murmurs and wanderings and air. Oh, Lewis tells such a good story. And interwoven in this fictional story, if you read it, it's a good story, and there's lots of other stuff in it, but he's woven a picture of gender. Uh, and, and he's done it in such a way that there's great dignity in it. That's not that femininity is worse than masculinity or masculinity is better than femininity or the other way around, but both of them provide a, um, something that without the other is lesser, but not incomplete. It, it's just fascinating. So if you want to read a good book on gender, a series on gender, pick up the old classic three-volume set of... C.S. Lewis's books um, on the, um, it, it's often called the Space Trilogy. And it, it's well written. Um, you'll find the first one a very easy read. Why might you find one, that one an easy read? 
It's masculine. And it's the easiest to read. The second one, sometimes it's hard, it was hard for me to get into it because it was so descriptive. I mean, it was. I mean, the, the second one he talks about later, he talks about the colors and the feeling and the waves and the... And, and, and I'm going, let's just get to the... Let's, what, what, what happens to the character? And I'm going, oh my goodness, how many times have I said that to my wife? Just cut to the chase. And then the third is this, is the hardest to get into. As a matter of fact, it, it's, the, it's the hardest story to get into because it gets kind of complicated and you get lost in it because it's, you're it's trying to put the two together and, and I think... Oh my goodness, that's relationship. It's, it's just a fascinating book on gender. And it'll remind you that gender is pre-fall and it's a theological concept. I was supposed to stop at 20 after. It's, it's 29 after. There's so much more we could talk about in terms of gender. Um, let me just look at my notes. Let me just look at my notes and just say to you, um, and, and I'll be glad to take... Um, take questions. They wanted me to make sure that I gave a few minutes for questions and, and, and about this topic. And uh, so um, my, my goal was really simple. I didn't want to turn this into um, let's um, I wanted it to be a practical yet theologically sound way to think about this topic in a way that might allow you to engage the culture you're dealing with and the age group you're dealing with in a way that might surprise them and bring them to the word of God and the truth of, of, of God in the middle of that. And so if I've accomplished that at all, then this, is, this would be, I would be pleased. If not, at least you've got a great book, set of books to read. Um, any questions about any of this? And, and that's, um, get curious before you get judgmental and say, what do you mean you identify with? Um, because often they will be identifying with a social construct, not a theological construct. Um, and I mean, what's, what's really interesting, uh, the Jenner situation, what he became was a stereotypical um, commodified version of femininity. I mean, he, you know, he had his first interview when he said that this is, the, this is what's going to happen. He didn't interview again until he, was, he had gone through the, the operations. And he came out very sexual, very seductive. And it's like, you, you, I think you're identifying with a social construct, not the theological construct that that God would say this is masculinity. Um, I mean, because he came out as a, um, I mean, as a commodified woman, which um, that's not no place in. Uh, I mean, it, it, that's the perversion of invitation. The perversion of invitation, seduction. Um, and so, so, so I think I would get curious about what I would, uh, and, and I, I would try to be specific. Tell me what you mean by that. Um, so, so often people are just repeating what they, everybody's uncomfortable. There's not a 14-year-old who's not sexually confused in our culture. I mean, I, you can't not be. And so the fact that now the word questioning is included in the kind of a, the, this, this category, it's like, I don't know of a 15-year-old who's not questioning stuff about sexuality. I think that's part of the very nature of what... And they've, they've been... They've, they've been... They've, almost all of them have seen pornography. And they... And what, the, the, what they've been invited to see is not sexuality um, the way humans have sexuality, but the way animals have sexuality for quick arousal. And... Um, and no wonder many of them are waiting to have sex later. Uh, but, uh, and, and people are, because what they really, I mean, it, it's so funny. We, we often want the opposite of what we, we, we say we want. Um, the, the hookup culture 
It's like, well, that, um, when you talk to kids, what they really want is, is something real, but that's not available, or it might be too inconvenient, or it might get messy and might keep me from reaching my dreams. And so it's just interesting. Um, but I would be curious to ask him. Um, and, and you're probably, if you go to the, we're going to be talking about conversations um, in the next hour. And we'll talk about kind of how to have curious conversations with people as opposed to, to competitive conversations and that. Any other questions about gender and some, anything I've said? Did you hear the question? It was a great question. It's like that what's happened is the culture doesn't see it the way I described it. I described it as gender um, is pre-fall and even pre-male-female. I mean, that, 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 that what we call gender, God might talk about that rhythm of the relational rhythm of, of, of connection and movement. Um, that we just happen to call that male, masculine, feminine. That, that, uh, that um, and so, so this person is taking it the opposite direction and said, gender is social construct, not a theological construct, and therefore God made me male. But because of, you know, I I feel these things. Um, um, I think you can engage them with a conversation that says so. Um, what if, you know, kind of, well, what if? Um, and um, because what people want to say is I was born this way, and most everything is a combination of nature, nurture, and choice. Christians tend to like to focus on choice. Uh, the culture tends to focus on nature. And, and the truth is, the th place where we could do the most work in terms of discipleship is nurture. What's happened to you? What's gone on in your life? What have you... And almost everything, depression, anxiety, almost all those things are a combination of nature, nurture, choice. And, um, and, and I realize there's a few of you that will immediately kind of push up against that and go, no, it's all choice. Everything's choice. Everything's choice. I have a 30-year-old autistic son. And... Uh, um, there's not a scalpel sharp enough on this side of heaven to understand when his, his, when his behavior is, in, is, is, um, is being impacted by his choice versus his nurture versus his nature. I, I, and, I, and, I've, and I've tried to know it. And, you know, when people try to say, well, if it's spiritual, deal with it spiritually. If it's physical, deal with it physically. You, you find me that scalpel. Because if I get upset spiritually, it'll, it'll show up physically because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and, and my serotonin levels change. And, I mean, and that's just true. And so when I, when I see somebody who's, you know, you know there, there seems to be this almost a shutting of our eyes to, you know, so I'll, so I'll usually try to say to somebody like that, that, well, how about if we both admit that some of our sexual orientation is affected by, is learned, including mine. And I will share with you the things that I think have shaped my learning part of that. And you can share what's your part of your learning part of that. And what you've done is you've taken them off of the stance, because what they've gone to is the stance that says, it's all nature, and therefore there's nothing we can do about it, and if God really loves me, this is just where I am. And so, I, well, I can't argue with that. You can just say, don't do it. Or you can say something like, you know, just some, some cliche. Instead, you know, the, the place that we can really do some great discipleship is that nurture piece, that, that part of... And so to do that, just acknowledge, well, well, let's just acknowledge that both of us are kind of messed up. 
because of the fall, our, our, our understanding of the way we live out uh, that is, is, is flawed. And I'm willing to look at those parts of, that, have that, have, that have shaped me. Will you look at the parts that have shaped you as we talk about it? And I think you're on a different conversation at that point. And, and I think that, that you've got a conversation that could lead to, a, oh, um, so we're both flawed and we're both being asked to live faithfully uh, to the Word of God. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that, that, that'll lead you to a very different conversation. Um, at least that's, that would be my thought. Great question. Anybody else? Any other questions before we call it a day? Um, you know, it's funny. I don't. I, I speak in front of people all the time, and uh, I'm, I'm now a pastor at a church instead of a full-time professor. And I was more nervous today talking to you all than I have been. Just I'm, it's it's been really kind of funny. You probably could tell that at the beginning. I was just, I, I, and I was just really nervous because you all are the frontline people. I mean, you guys are. This is a mass unit. I mean, you guys are the frontline people dealing with a changing in culture and changing in life, and it's just a privilege to have talked with you. Let me pray for us, and we're done. Father, thank you for this time and this privilege. Um, would you give us a new sense of the, of, of the wild and beautiful way that you created this world? Would you give us a fresh sense of the way you painted on the canvas of Eden a beautiful, amazing, fascinating image of yourself. Would you uh, give us voice and understanding to a culture that has lost so much of its way in this area that was supposed to glorify you? So, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use this to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, use it to comfort and equip them. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website, where we publish articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. You will also find resources and more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.